Hello, and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in True New York, on the unceded home ha- homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Jacob Boston. And I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Kaylin McPherson's coverage from a rally in Albany, New York, to protest the violence of the Israeli government against Palestinian people. Then Moses Nagel recaps the candidate forum on the Commissioner of Public Safety in Saratoga, New York. Later on, we have coverage from Willie Terry on the Troy NAACP branch Freedom Fund Breakfast. After that, Bria Barthel brings us an update from the Albany Public Library. And finally, we highlight the India-based artists Padmini Shatur and Martin Visser, who are showcasing work at the upcoming Impact Shifting Center show. But first, here are the headlines. Troy police are investigating an attempted armed robbery that occurred shortly before midnight on Wednesday night on 6th Avenue and 103rd Street in Lantenburg. The Art Center of the Capital Region will hold a block party on Saturday to end their Troy Art Block project. 27 murals have been painted on Church Street Alley, creating the densest concentration of public art in the Capital Region. Saturday's party will run from noon to 5 p.m. Albany Mayor Kathy Sheehan announced an increased police presence around Jewish places of worship, school, Jewish places of worship, schools, and institutions on Friday morning. No announcement was made about No announcement was made about protecting Muslim sites. The Times Union reports that the state attorney general's office will not pursue criminal charges against several Catskill police officers who two years ago at the police station killed a 29-year-old man by igniting him with a taser moments after he doused himself with a flammable hand sanitizer. The police officers claimed that they rushed out of the room as the man burnt in order to find a fire extinguisher and had no intent of killing him. And that's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community, intro, and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. The conflict in Israel and Palestine has resulted in the devastating loss of both Israeli and Palestinian lives. People all around the world are calling for the violence to be put to an end. This is no different in Albany, New York, where on October 10th, a rally was held in Townsend Park to protest the, Israel, to protest the Israeli government's actions against the Palestinian people. HMM's Kaylin McPherson was on the scene and talked with the protesters at the rally about their thoughts on what is happening in Palestine. What you're hearing is the rally from Townsend Park on October, Tuesday, October 10th, 2023. Stand with the people of Palestine, the Palestinian resistance. You're hearing Iyad El-Karabi, a member of the Palestinian Rights Committee who put this rally together. All right, thank you all for coming. 
Can you please say your name and who, what group you came with today? I'm Heather Benno, and I'm here with the Answer Coalition, which stands for Act Now to Stop War and End Racism. Can you tell me a little bit why you came today? Yeah, I, I came, I've been involved in the struggle to f stand for Palestinian liberation for over 20 years. Um, I'm here because as, you know, as a as a mother and as a regular working person here in Albany, I stand against genocide. I stand against the occupation of Palestine. And I think it's really, really wrong for our elected officials to present as though the occupation is in some way the right cause or justice. We're here to say that's not true. The occupation should be, should be done. If you could tell our listener one thing about this, what would you tell them? That the cause for Palestinian liberation is just becoming more popular, that and that ultimately, um, you know, Palestinians will never stop until they're free. Thank you for talking with me today. Yes, thank you so much. Can you tell me a little bit more about your group, Answer? Yeah, the Answer Coalition um, formed basically to oppose U.S. occupation and imperialism and war around the world and also to fight against racism here at home. We stood against the war um, in Afghanistan. We were some of the first um, folks to come out and take to the streets to say no, just because there was an international, that there was an attack, a terrorist attack that happened here, doesn't mean that we defend U.S. imperialism. And we continue that work today. How do you continue that work today? Um, we're involved in the immigrant rights movement, the movement for black lives. We're involved in the solidarity struggle with, um, for freedom for Palestine. Um, and we've sent many delegations to Iraq over the years to report on the true horrors of sanctions and that occupation as well. Thank you for talking with me today. Yes, thank you so much. Can you please introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Tom Ellis, T-O-M-E-L-L-I-S. I live in Albany and I'm a longtime member of the local Palestinian Rights Committee. So what do you have here on your little poster? I have a poster that's about 20 years old. It contains photographs of Israelis and Palestinians grieving for their dead children. These are from the Second Intifada. These photos are about 20 years old. So this is an old poster. Can you explain a little bit more about that event? Yes. For many years, the Palestinian Rights Committee held a Children's Memorial Day flower vigil in different places in Albany. I think we did it for nine years. And what we would do is we would read the names of Israeli and Palestinian children who had been killed during the Second Intifada. And sometimes it took us more than an hour to read all of the names. So we were reading both sides. And so I kept the posters. And so I wore it today because I wanted to make the point that I want a ceasefire, I want an end to the killing. I want the Palestinians and the Israelis to be able to live safely. I, I want an end to the conflict. They're, they're very gruesome photos. Yes, they are. Well, I mean, they're, I, know, I wouldn't say they're gruesome. They're photos of people hurt, 
you know, looking over dead bodies or a, or a casket of their ch- family. If you could tell our listeners one thing, what would you tell them? I would say that I urge listeners to put pressure on our elected officials at the federal and the state level to demand that the United States end its military support for Israel and apply pressure to Israel to force Israel to treat Palestinians like human beings. If more people want to find information on the Palestinian Rights Committee, where can they find that? Uh, We're going to have a website soon. People could contact me at my email address at t-o-m-e-l-l-i-s-107 at gmail.com. Thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you. Can you tell me your name and the group you're with today? Uh, I'm Doug Bullock. I'm with the Solidarity Committee of the Capital District, and I'm first vice president of the Albany Central Federation of Labor. Can you tell me a little bit why you came today? I came today because I want to stop the slaughter that's going on against Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. They're sitting ducks, they're being bombed constantly, and they're losing thousands of civilians, and it's got to stop before it goes way out of, out of reach. And so, you know, I'm here to try and stop that bombing, peace talks, and a ceasefire immediately. That's what we need. Between the two countries and then the U.S.? Right, and the U.S. U.S. is part of this war. They've taken sides with Israel. They're, they're uh, provoking Israel to go through with the bombing of the Gaza Strip, and it's outrageous that the corporate media is playing a propagandist role to uh, eliminate Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. If you could tell our listener one thing about this, what would you tell them? I would tell them that get another source. Find alternative media. Watch Democracy Now! Get the truth. You won't get it from the corporate media. Can you tell me a little bit about the groups you work for? Yeah, uh, I'm with the Solidarity Committee. We've been established for years uh, in the Capital District. And, uh, you know, we support labor unions mainly, their struggles, and the struggles of the peace movement. So we've been around for a long time. And I'm also... Also, uh, the first vice president of the Albany County Central Federation of Labor, and we support local unions around the Capital District to organize, to strike, and to uh, help with contract rallies. Any final thoughts? What? Any final thoughts? Yeah. We have to have a ceasefire immediately. We have to have a ceasefire in Israel, a ceasefire in Ukraine, and peace talks in both countries now. Thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you for interviewing me. You're welcome. Can you please introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Yad Al-Karabi. I'm a Palestinian-American activist, and I'm also queer. And I'm a, uh, I'm, I was one of the organizers here, but it was a coalition effort. You're also part of the uh, Palestinian Rights Committee. Yes, yes. Can you tell me a little bit about this event? Um, this is an ongoing response to an ongoing issue. It, it didn't just start because Palestinians reacted to something. It's an ongoing historic issue. What's the mission of this uh, rally? Um, to stand up against the injustices and stand up for Palestine. If you could tell a listener one thing, what, it would, what would it be? 
look up to, look up on Palestine issues. Thank you for speaking with me today. Next, at the rally, there were speeches given. This speech is by a mother crying about what's going on in Palestine. What is happening to Palestinian and Israeli civilians is absolutely heartbreaking. Our condolences go out to anyone who's been impacted by this conflict. On October 11th, the League of Women's Voters sponsored a candidate forum for Commissioner of Public Safety in Saratoga Springs, New York. The candidates were incumbent Democrat Jim Montanino, Tim Cole running on the Republican line, and independent candidate Kristen Dart, who spoke first. As a fifth-generation Saratogian, I'm proud to be running for the Commissioner of Public Safety. I spent the majority of my life here in Saratoga, and I have a long-standing commitment to serving the community. From my high school days when I suggested that public comment be added to city council meetings, to recently serving on the police reform task force, and currently serving as the inaugural chair of the Civilian Review Board. I also work on the Community Development Block Grant Committee to distribute funds throughout community nonprofits. Our police and fire departments work tirelessly to keep our community safe and healthy. However, I understand that public safety is not only the police and fire departments. Public safety is about supporting the community. When we build a strong community, we have a safe community. Safe community means prioritizing pedestrian safety by connecting our neighborhood with more sidewalks and bike lanes. As Commissioner of Public Safety, I would work to implement the 50-point reinvention plan. The 50-point plan was the work of community members with significant input from the public. Thank you, Kristen. Jim, your opening statement. Thank you. Good evening. I'm Jim Montagnino, and I'm the Commissioner of Public Safety in Saratoga Springs. When I ran for office two years ago, I made you a number of promises. I'm happy to report that our administration has delivered on those promises. First, I promised to report on the circumstances surrounding the death of Daryl Mount. 
In my second month in office, I presented a 37-page report that detailed with factual and legal specificity the events of the night of August 31st, 2013. The report showed that our police officers acted entirely appropriately in responding to a domestic violence incident they had witnessed, and that Mr. Mount sustained his injuries when he fell from scaffolding while attempting to avoid apprehension. Second, I promised a civilian review board. In my fourth month in office, I presented to the city council a draft ordinance that I had written, which created the CRB and outlined the scope of its powers and authority. That CRB is now fully functional, though I'm pleased to report they currently have no complaints to investigate at present. Finally, and perhaps saving the best till last, our administration has taken the third fire station from groundbreaking through completion. We're in the final steps of equipping the station with office furniture, kitchen equipment, and various other final touches in anticipation of opening by November 1st. We've gotten a lot done in the, in the last two years, and there's still a lot more to do. We humbly offer our services to the voters should they choose to elect us for another term. Thank you. Tim, it's your turn. My name is Tim Cole. I'm 58 years old. I am married uh, and uh, we have two adult children that we're very, very proud of. You know, in the 19, 1980s in the United States of America, there was a savings and loan crisis. And at the time I was recently graduated from, from college, I had a finance degree uh, and I was working for a large international bank. And at that time, the FBI was trying to find new agents who had banking experience. So I became an FBI agent and I did that for uh, 30 years. I worked uh, drug investigations, money laundering investigations, organized crime, white collar crime, including corporate fraud, public corruption and terrorism. Uh, I had the opportunity to lead the terrorism task force here in Albany. If I'm fortunate enough to be elected here in Saratoga Springs, I will use my experience and skill set to keep all Saratogians safe. All right, this question is going to go to you, Tim, first. The death of Daryl Mount and the controversy about what happened and the police investigation has created an ongoing rift in the community. How do you plan to address it? Well, the, the Daryl Mount's situation has been ongoing in this city for, for 10 years. There's currently a, a civil trial going on in our county uh, where we get to observe the facts and we get to learn about the facts. So hopefully once that civil case is over, we will have some, some closure. But, but let me be clear, there's been no facts in 10 years that I've been made aware of that indicate the Saratoga Springs Police, Police Department beat or killed Daryl Mounts. During this last civil trial, you know, I went to the opening statements made by the plaintiff's attorney. And again, there are no facts presented that I see that indicate that the Saratoga Springs Police Department beat or killed Daryl Mounts. Now, in fairness, we need to be patient and we need to wait to the conclusion of that case before we make any, any final decision. Okay, thank you, Tim. Kristen? I believe that the Daryl Mount case has brought a spotlight to um, policing in our community. And quite frankly, it is a response to policing across our, our country. And that is why I am committed to implementing the 50 point plan. I sat on the police reform task force that came out of an executive order, order from the governor at the time. And 
It is important that the police and the community have a strong relationship with each other. And that means having direct conversations and coming up with policy solutions that meet the need of our community in this moment. We will see the result of the trial and no matter what that outcome is, the city is going to have to move forward. And I'm hoping that we can do so in a positive and productive manner where we bring changes that may be needed in our community, both for community member sakes and for the police department's sake to have a positive relationship moving forward. Okay, thank you very much, Kristen. Uh, Jim. I spent a lot of time reading over thousands of pages of deposition transcripts, police reports, uh, looking at the photographs of the crime scene uh, uh, and so on. And I'm convinced, and I put this into my 37 page report, there was no police misconduct there. Uh, what's very unfortunate is that there has been a small but very vocal group of people who have accused our police department of murder. They've accused the department of, of an execution. There's no evidence for that, and the trial will show that. Uh, what we did learn, though, from the Darrell Mount case was the reaction of the hierarchy in the department at the time was too slow, and the release of information was too slow. There was supposed to have been an internal investigation that didn't occur. We've learned the lessons from that case. Uh, specifically, November 20th of last year, we had the uh, shooting on Broadway, and we responded in a very different fashion. Uh, we took a lot of criticism, but I'm convinced that we did the right thing by releasing a minute or two of the body camera footage and the poll camera footage to show that this was an isolated incident between two individuals who were intoxicated. Uh, this was not an incident of uh, gang violence or a racially motivated incident as social media had begun to discuss earlier. So it's openness that makes the difference. Okay, well, thank you. This question is gonna go to you first, um, Jim. Which aspects of the Civilian Review Board do you support? What would you keep or modify? And how does restorative justice fit in? That, that's a really great question because in terms of things that I would change about the Civilian Review Board, I don't think I'd change any simply because the ordinance that created the Review Board was written uh, verbatim by myself. Uh, not that I'm patting myself on the back for it, but I'm saying that, that uh, I took the suggestions, the recommendations of the Police Reform Task Force and turned that into real legislation. Uh, if you read the ordinance carefully, you'll see that it not only has procedural aspects to it, uh, it outlines the scope of the authority of the CRB, the administrative subpoena power of the CRB, and it also carefully tracks the language of the city charter, which uh, empowers the commissioner of public safety to be the final authority for police discipline. Uh, and that ordinance relevant to the CRB uh, specifically outlines the the uh, responsibilities as well as the authority of the commissioner when it comes to dealing with uh, the results of a CRB report and recommendation. Okay, thank you very much, Jim. Um, Tim? The CRB has been created. Uh, it's not operational yet because it has it has no cases. Uh, and I know it's been it's been modeled after other CRBs and cities throughout the country, sometimes they're referred to as civilian complaint review boards or CCRB is what they have down in, in, in New York City. And, you know, and I'm an advocate for the CRBs. It provides 
uh, uh, checks and balances, you know, for, for the police department. Okay, um, thank you. Uh, Kristen, I think you probably have something to say about this. So I actually served on the subcommittee um, on the police reform task force that helped create the recommendation for CRB um, and the ordinance that the current commissioner um, proposed and passed is largely based on the work that those community members did to create um, our CRB. And we were very intentional about that work, including um, a restorative justice piece that um, includes mediation as one of the early steps when a complaint is received. You can find more Election Watch 2023 coverage on our website. Just go to mediasanctuary.org and click on the red bar. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazil-Hickey. And I'm Jacob Boston. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Choi, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Choi, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Roaming labor correspondent Willa Terry attended the NAACP Freedom Front Breakfast with guest speaker Dr. Jennifer Burns, PhD and professor of history at SUNY Albany. Willa recorded her speech on the free black community in Troy, New York before 1861. Now we're at the heart of the program here. I want to introduce, and I am honored to introduce our guest speaker. And uh, our guest speaker is well known in the capital region. And I had the privilege of meeting uh, Dr. Jennifer Burns earlier this year at the Rensselaer County Justice Center Robert Doherty Memorial Lecture that featured keynote speaker and historian Dr. Joseph, where Dr. Burns uh, served as the moderator for that event. When I learned about her doctoral research, I had to learn more about Dr. Burns. I was very fascinated by the title. I reached out to Dr. Burns and had a tremendous and exciting conversation with her about her work and her future work. And as a result of our discussion, I thought it would be timely and vital that her research about Troy be shared. Our guest speaker currently serves as a lecturer in the Department of Africana Studies at the University of Albany. Uh, she has contributed to several historical database projects and documentaries, including the Slavery by Another Name, the Reenactment of Black Americans from the Civil War to World War II, written by uh, Douglas Blackman, the 2012 edition. She's also contributed to Searching for Timbuktu, produced by Paul Miller in 2021. And most recently, uh, she has contributed to the WHMT docuseries, Reframing an Empire. As a lo local historian, Dr. Burns has presented at numerous community events and conferences and received numerous awards, including the University of Albany 2019 Distinguished Dissertation Award for her doctoral dissertation, Black Trojans, the Grassroots Abolition Campaign of the Free Black Community in Troy, New York, before 1861. 
She earned her bachelor's degree in Africana Studies and her master's and doctoral degrees in American History from the History Department at University of Albany. Now let's give a warm welcome to our guest speaker, Dr. Jennifer Burns. First thing I'd like to do is thank everyone, and in particular the NAACP, for allowing me to share this annual breakfast with you, um, and also to be able to deliver information that I needed when I was growing up here in Lansingburg, but wasn't present in my education. I um, grew up in the Berg, as we call it, if you're from Lansingburg, okay? And one of the things that shaped my life was that as I was going through school, I did not see people that looked like me in my studies. And it wasn't that long ago. I mean, I know I look a little older now, but it was not too long ago. And so I experienced this kind of disconnect with my education and also with sometimes my teachers and my friends because there was really only a handful of black kids in Lansingburg when I was growing up and in that school, right? So there was a disconnect that I felt. And that disconnect was misinterpreted as that I didn't understand well enough what I was being taught. And I understood what I was being taught, but I couldn't place it in the right context because I kept wondering, and some of you have heard me say this before, where are all the black people? <laughs> right? And I couldn't fully articulate this as a kid though. Right, as a kid, I just knew that I had this feeling that I wasn't there, that it was omitted, that it needed to be there, and I wanted to more, know more about it. And I wanted other people to know about it. Right? And I'd like to say that this was a smooth ride to figuring it out to get to where I am today, but it wasn't smooth. I um, was required to spend time in after-school tutoring, one-on-one -on -one in history. It was a thing. It was, it was real. Yeah, I did. Um, I also was required to get additional one-on-one -on -one assistance in um, reading and English. And now I have continued to remain a slow reader, but I've also discovered about myself that one of the reasons I read so slow is my mind is constantly working I'm making connections to what I'm reading with what I'm seeing and needing and wanting to know more about. So it tends to take me a little while to get through things. Um, I will say though that when I got to my senior year in high school, I was about to fail Regents English. Now this is gonna date me a little bit, you see, because back then you could get a regular diploma or you'd get a Regents diploma. Okay, so. Um, I was going to fail. Well, I wasn't going to fail. I just wasn't going to get the Regents Diploma if I didn't pass English with a certain grade. And the teacher I had gave me a list of books that I could read. And she said, you're going to read one of these books, and then you'll write a research paper. I said, OK. And I chose a book called Jubilee by Margaret Walker. 
And I don't know if any of you are familiar with this book, but it's about 700 pages long. <laughs> it's ambitious. It was always ambitious. And um, it was about a black woman during the Civil War who went from enslavement to freedom. And when I read it, I thought, this is what I'm looking for. And it was much later in life that I came across an interview by Octavia Butler, who's a very famous writer, the late Octavia Butler, about her book, Kindred. She had written Kindred in the 1970s, and it's a really seminal work about African-American um, history, and also it's done through sci-fi. And when she was interviewed about how she wrote the book, this time travel of the main character, she said, I wanted to write a book that made people feel history. And I thought, oh, that's also what I'm searching for. I had a nagging feeling in me. Where are all the black people around me, in my education, right? Where are they? And when she said that in this interview and I read it, I thought, that's right. I want to feel it and I want to write stuff that other people feel too. Right? Now, I read this book in high school. It started my yearning to know more about the black experience, but also at the same time, people name dropped Henry Highland Garnett because he wasn't part of my regular education. It just kind of came at the end. And I was like, oh. He must have brought all the black people. <laughs> then I was like, well, how could that be possible? Like, he brought them all and nobody had a problem and he came here in like 18, the 1830s? Like, wait a minute, right? So I took a course in college at Hudson Valley, sir. I did, I went to Hudson Valley. And um, it was Intro to African American History. And it reignited my love with black history. And it also pushed this feeling, that nagging, that where is, where are, what did they do, the black people in Troy around me. And again, I'd like to say that that was the point where I turned and was like, yes, I am going to pursue a degree in Africana studies, and I am going to be a college professor. No. <laughs> um, and that was because, really, I didn't see the worthiness in myself or in Africana studies at the time, because for so long up to that point, it wasn't included in my education as something worthy to know and do. And I didn't know this then. I now look back and I can reflect on this. And you know, when Renee said to me, this, um, this breakfast, the theme of this breakfast is empower me, that struck a chord in me because as I was kind of stumbling through my way, wanting to know where all the black people are, I realized that I was empowering myself and I eventually ran into some professors who were also empowering me. I didn't know it fully at the time because I was like, no, no, I think I need to go be in like forensic psychology. I think I need to go be a lawyer. Right? And then my side hustle became collecting information about the black Trojans. Mm. Right? It was on the side. It wasn't the main dish. I continued to major in Africana studies, though, because it was food for my soul. Mm. I could feel it, and I could see and know that I came from, in this area, a powerful movement of people 
who are dedicated to the same things that I see people in Troy dedicated to today. This is part one of four segments by Willie Terry on the Troy NAACP branch Freedom Fund Breakfast. And next, Bookworms Be Rare, we have another Bria Barthel library segment. In this uh, story, she heads to Albany Public Library for the October update. Hi, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Frequent listeners will know that I love books and I love libraries with my monthly interviews with three librarians from Troy Public Library. And today... I am delighted to introduce a new guest to the show. Andrea Nikolai is the uh, somewhat new, one year in the position, Executive Director of Albany Public Library. Andrea, welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm delighted to be with Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you, Bria. And you've just uh, completed your one year. You had your anniversary back in August. What is something that strikes you from your, your tenure so far? at the library? I would have to say, above all, the quality of the staff here at Albany Public Library. I am continually impressed with their dedication, their passion for public service. I'm continually impressed with how much they care about the community. And um, and I can also tell that Albany is a real library supporting community. I mean, there are seven branches in this city of 99,000. And people are really, really, um, you know, clearly valuing the concept of of the public library. So I'm I'm thrilled to be here, and you know, only see great progress ahead. <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned the number of branches. You weren't here back in 2010 when there other towns were cutting their library budgets, closing their libraries, and instead Albany was expanding with renovating libraries and even building a new Arbor Hill branch. It was a really exciting time and had me proud to be an Albanian. Yes, listeners, that's the word for people from Albany. Well, yeah, I mean, the branch improvement project was such a such a boon to the city and and really, you know, resulted in some award winning buildings as well and some really environmentally responsible structures, which is also an admirable outcome of that campaign. Now, you mentioned that there are seven branches, and I know that coming up on November 6th, the service hours at branches are changing. What's going on? Well, the service hours at Albany Public Library district-wide are actually staying the same, 59 hours a week across the whole district of seven branches. But we've had to make some key changes in support of our new strategic plan goals. So back in January, um, after some after lengthy you know, surveying and public meetings and staff meetings, the outcome was a, a new strategic plan for the library that had four goals. And two, among those goals are community engagement and workforce. Another goal is sustainability. Another goal is diversity, equity, inclusion, and access in the library. So. In light of these goals, we had to look at what we could do with existing resources in order to improve the level of outreach in the community, the level of programming in the community, especially at times when people really want to attend programs. And the key time that people are available, especially with their kids as perhaps working parents and caregivers, is the weekend. So we started taking a hard look at traffic and uh, resources available at our various locations, what we could do to enhance 
regular programming and outreach activities on Saturdays. So the new hours, which don't go into effect until November 6th, really recognize that desire to offer regular, continuous programming on Saturday mornings and afternoons at our three largest locations. So what we're going to be doing is opening Washington Avenue, Pine Hills branch, and the Howe branch from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. That is an addition of hours at Pine Hills and Howe on the weekends on Saturdays. It is the same number of hours at Washington Avenue, which has been open from 10 to 5 on Saturdays for some time now. In order to improve the staffing levels on Saturdays at these three locations, we're going to be closing the Arbor Hill, West Hill, Bach, and Delaware branches on Saturdays only so that we can shift the staff from those locations and have them join the staff at the three largest locations. What this achieves is the kind of staffing level on the weekends when we traditionally have had extremely thin staffing will have enough so that we can offer story times, so that we can go to events in the city and table as a library, so that we can get new patrons. We want people to know about us. Our visitors have decreased by 50% since the pandemic, which is a striking number and may surprise a lot of folks out there, but our visitors have dropped precipitously since the pandemic. A lot of behaviors have changed. What we need to do is reach new audiences, and we're not going to do it by maintaining exactly what we've been doing since pre-pandemic days. So that's the idea. And you mentioned having new expanded programs and trying to attract new groups. As I was looking through the newsletter, I saw there's such a variety of programs going on. One of the things that struck me was all of the craft programs with sewing groups and knitting groups and stitching exchange, doing work uh, with refugees and immigrants working on sewing projects. There's HIV and hepatitis C testing. There's just so much stuff. How do you keep it all straight? (laughs) We do have a wonderful new online calendaring system. And when you go to our website, it's much easier to find events at your branch. It's much easier to scroll through and figure out what's going to be best for you or your family. So I'm excited to promote that change. But we have an amazing staff, as I've said, and they are full of ideas about what to offer the community. We also have a lot of wonderful community partners. So a lot of the programs that you've just mentioned are made possible through those partnerships. And we're constantly looking for new partners for programs. So, you know, one of the programs we had recently was a partnership with the Radix Center where we did urban foraging. We've had a lot of success with these partner programs. I do just want to go back to the hours for a moment because I don't want folks to think that there won't be any availability of hours at Arbor Hill, West Hill, Bach, and Delaware on the weekends. Arbor Hill, West Hill, Bach, and Delaware will be open on Sundays from 1 to 5, and you can find all of the new hours information on our website. But anyway, I'm very proud of our programming schedule, and it's exciting to think of what more we will be able to do once we have an enhanced staffing level on weekends and We're also ramping up our our programs and partnerships department. So we're adding a couple of outreach and programming librarians to that department, which has until now been a department of one. So really excited about branching out into new directions, directions that support our diversity, equity, inclusion, and access goals and get us connected with new library users. 
Now, you've mentioned diversity, equity, and inclusion, and that brings us to another topic I wanted to be sure to talk with you about, and that is the people who oppose such things and the idea of banned books. The American Library Association declared October 1st through 7th Banned Book Week, but of course the challenges, as we all know from the news, go far beyond the one week. What's going on with banned books, and how is it affecting the libraries here in Albany, if at all? Thank you so much for asking about this incredibly important issue. We as a library uphold people's right to read, their freedom to read, to our diversity, equity, inclusion, and access goals. It is extremely important and actually vital to the the survival of a community that they be able to connect with the literature and with the materials here at the library to better understand themselves and each other. That's what we promote, sharing ideas. We promote understanding in the world. We promote people learning for themselves so that they can make the best decisions for themselves concerning private matters, concerning matters of identity, concerning all kinds of different elements of one's world. And so I'm really proud to say that the Board of Trustees of the Albany Public Library last year voted unanimously to join the American Library Association's Unite Against Book Bans initiative, which is a national initiative that draws together a coalition of libraries, bookstores, publishers, literacy organizations, all those who wish to uphold people's freedom to read and their right to read. And so I'm very proud that the board made that move. I am also happy to say that we have not come across challenges to materials here at Albany Public Library, at least not in recent memory. And I'm talking about the last 10 years. So it seems that Albany recognizes something that some other communities are are struggling to recognize insofar as books and ideas not really being the threat in the world. The threats in the world are many, but they don't start with people being introduced to new ideas through books and materials. There's so much here to pick up on, but unfortunately, we're already over time. I do want to mention that the website has information on the new library hours, on the many programs, www.albanypubliclibrary, all one word, .org. And there you can find information on something I wanted to get into but didn't have time for, the Exquisite Corpse. C-O-R-P-S-E, exhibit, but it's not corpses, even though that would be great for Halloween. You'll have to look the library website to find out about that. So Andrea Nikolai, the executive director of Albany Public Library, thank you so much for talking to Hudson Mohawk Magazine listeners. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was Bea Barthel with our October Library Update. For more information, go to albanypubliclibrary.org. And we close tonight's show with another artist highlight from the upcoming Shifting Center exhibition coming to MPAC beginning on November 3rd. Padmini Chatur and Martin Visser are long-term artistic collaborators. Chatur is a dancer and choreographer and Visser is a musician and composer. Their work will be part of the upcoming Shifting Center exhibition coming to MPAC beginning on November 3rd. They join me now. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank Thank you you. so much. Could you please introduce yourselves to our listeners? My name is Padvini Chetur. Um, I'm a dancer and a choreographer. I live in, in India in the city of Chennai. And I, my training was originally in the form Bharatanatyam, one of the Indian classical forms. 
But for the last three decades or so, I've been working predominantly as a contemporary maker. Uh, my name is Maarten Visser. I studied contemporary improvised music very long ago, after which I came to India to learn Carnatic music, which I never really did. But I did meet Padmini and we started to work around 99-2000. And we've been doing that ever since. I'm also a saxophonist and I, I have my own trios and, and groups and I play commercial uh, gigs as well. So you began collaborating in 1999-2000, so we're over 20 years of collaboration. That is a long time, so you must be very familiar with each other's work. Can you talk about what your collaboration has been like? What drew you originally to each other and the evolution of your uh, collaborations over the years? So sort of in the early and mid-90s, when I started as a very young choreographer to make uh, work that was quite unusual for India at the time. It was quite hard for me to find somebody who would be willing to compose music, especially for the work. Uh, because though I live in a city which has a lot of incredible classical Indian musicians, people weren't very open to experimenting or especially working in a context that I was offering where there was no money at the time and it, we were really open to failing. And so at that point, Martin had just come to India at the time and I met him and he was also eager to collaborate with somebody coming from Holland. He was used to watching contemporary dance. So our, our first work just started very, very slowly. Um, and then we started to realize we were actually like able to create a language that was very unique. It had a unique aesthetic that seemed to be uh, addressing the space that I wanted the work to, to live within that was very abstract and quite minimalist, but at the same time had somehow a lot of tension and friction, not only in the body, but also then how Martin was actually working with sound over the image, um, almost in a dramaturgical way. Uh, and we also were, were partners, so we were also living together through this time. So the work just grew out of this. We both had also projects we would do sometimes separately, but for the, the body of the dance work and then later the work in film, we have a very easy way of collaborating, I would say. I failed a lot in the beginning because Padmini would keep saying, yeah, this is just too Western. Can't you make something less Western? And so I had to really uh, search for what actually what she means when she says that and also what it then was, what, what could be added to her work. We had the privilege of a time. We took a long time, especially our earlier works, yeah, sometimes up to three years to to make a to make one work, and uh, and in this time I failed a lot. I, I admit that. And and but we both always knew when we got it right. Like this now something is happening, and now this we need to continue with. 
And you say <laughs> that you failed a lot, but isn't experimental really embracing failure and seeing that as part of the process and just a step further, closer to yeah, success? It, it doesn't feel like that if you spend two months making like five minutes and then someone says, nah, I don't like it. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. So, yes, you're right, of course. And then after some sulking, I go back to it and and I think, yeah, actually, you're right. And then you go through the whole thing again and maybe one more time. So for your installation at MPAC, you're presenting your work a slightly curving place in which Chetur is filmed dancing in front of the ruins of an amphitheater at an archaeological site in An- Anupu? Anupu. In India. Um, so what is what can you tell us about this piece and what are you trying to convey to the visitor? What would you like them to experience through this? So this film was actually um, commissioned uh, by the curator, uh, Nida Ghosh, when she was working at the House of World Culture. And it was initially a part of a project that was looking at the work of somebody called Uma Shankar Mantravadi, who was somebody who was building and uh, and thinking around a certain kind of research within archaeological sites and was, uh, was creating ambisonic microphones and sort of doing experiments on sound recordings as a way to somehow listen to the past. So this was the brief we were given and we were invited to do any kind of project that we would like to. We chose to work in one of the archaeological sites that was Anupu. It's a, it was a, a Buddhist temple and amphitheater. And the interesting thing about the history of this space was in the building of a dam, it was 70s, the whole site was somehow removed from its original place and brick by brick it was relayed in another place on a hilltop. And so this whole idea of something, a site itself being displaced was interesting for me to think around. And the, the geography of the site is what um, in, in Indian visual language we would refer to as a mandala. So it, it basically resembles like a circle within a square and the proportions of the site, the first time we visited it, we felt were incredibly appropriate to somehow a single human figure inhabiting the space. And so our thoughts of working with the film grew out of this. And we very much uh, look to this idea of looking at a body from the outside and the body looking at space from the inside. So this these two views are uh, very integral to the the early thoughts and the conception of the film. And uh, and that's what we, we think that that visitors will experience this idea of, of a duality of gaze somehow, of, of watching a body in a space. But there's also many, many times in the film when you almost see the bodies, the body becomes somehow less significant and, and the space is what we start to see. And, and that was very much the intention is so there are parts of the film where I'm actually I'm wearing the camera and filming the space while in movement. So the, the idea of the body seeing space. 
space, I think, was something that we were thinking. So this piece was created, as you said, in Anupu. How does this translate to Troy? How does the original intention, uh, or does, does it need to stay true to the original intention? How do you bring a place that was conceived somewhere else to a new location? So we've never had an official screening in India. So the film, from the beginning of its being made, it was first in Berlin and then Dubai, and now it comes to America. And I think that it's very, it, it matters not at all, like what the site is. I think the beauty of the film is that there's, a, there's something about the, the image that is very, uh, very much about texture and time uh, and sort of the materiality of, of stone. It's an imagination uh, that any viewer can actually understand. There's something about it that looks very historic, but there's also something very present about the way the body is sort of standing within the space. Uh, and the sound is very, very contemporary. So it, it doesn't matter. There's a sense of us seeing something about the past, but that somehow being brought into the present. It, it's really about pure image and it's about space and time. It has been such a pleasure to speak with both of you and looking forward to seeing you as a part of the MPAC Shifting Center exhibition beginning on November 3rd at MPAC. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you, Padmini Shatur and Martin Visser. That was Martin Visser and Padmini Shatur, who are two of the artists coming to MPAC in the um, Shifting Center exhibition. You can also find at mediasanctuary.org an interview with Maurice Luca and Beatrice Cortez, and we will have more artists coming soon. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Jacob Austin. Our engineer is also Sina Bazila Hickey. We thank all of our volunteers who made today's episode possible. We want to thank Mark Dunley for headlines, Kayla McPherson, Moses Nagel, Willie Terry, and Bria Barthel for segment production, and thank you, Jacob. <laughs> You're welcome. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donation. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.